John chapter 11. And today we're going to be going through verses 17 through 53. I'd like to start just by reading a portion of that passage and just prepare our hearts to hear the word of God. This is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus or the resuscitation of Lazarus, I should say. And uh, so would you join me as I read the word of God and then I'd like to pray. John chapter 11, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Fathers, we come now to this incredible portion of your word. I pray, God, that you would open eyes in new ways to see the depths of your love, to see the heights of your, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has come without faith, that has come without a knowledge of who you are, God, that you would do the miraculous work in their heart of turning the light of truth on. Let them see who Jesus is today. And for those of us who have come struggling with, with a weight on our shoulders, a, a particular burden that we're carrying in this particular moment of life, Lord, would you help us once again to be reminded of these truths that we would set our eyes on Christ and grow deeper in our worship and our love for Him. Let us rest today in the truth of who You are, in Your great love for us, in Your power over sin and death. And may you, we worship You because of Your infinite worth. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're going to go on and cover several other verses, and so we've got a lot of verses to cover, so we're not, we may not go in depth in, in every single one of them, but what I'd like you to see today, my goal is just to, to, to really remind you of what many of you already know, or perhaps introduce you to what you, what you need to know when it comes to life, and the goal is to see Jesus. It's that simple. The goal is to see Christ. The goal is to see His glory. I, I want you, wherever you are, to know God today. I want you to trust Him. I want you to treasure Him. I want you to glorify Him. Why? Because 
a lot of times when, when, when we're going through life, we, we come into trials and troubles and, and, and situations, even like today for me. I'm, I'm thankful, actually really happy that, that this church values giving your, your, your pastors in particular and elders time away, time to rest, time to rejuvenate. I just came back from a vacation myself and uh, had a great time with my family, but I came back into like the whirlwind. Uh, came back into a, a death of, of someone in our church family. Came back into a situation of a potential divorce of, of, of some, someone. Came back into some turning away of a dear friend. Into, into a world even where Christians are fighting one another. Into high profile leaders that are falling away from faith. And we could go on and on and on. I'm sure in each of our situations we, we have our battles in front of us. And we can, we can be tempted into thinking or believing those things are, more, are bigger th- than the truth of who Christ is. You see, in that situation, we're tempted to, to believe or to somehow think that, that the love of God is far away from us in that moment. But in this passage, in this chapter, we learn that God's greatest love for us is not to remove us from suffering, but to see his glory, to reveal His glory to us in the midst of our suffering. We live on planet death. We live on a world that is cursed with sin. And yet we as Christians have been set free and yet we're here. We have to walk that out and we have to live by faith. How do we do that? Jesus helps us in this story. And so my job today is to tell you the truth. And your job is to consider the truth and to respond. I want to ask you, and I'll be asking you throughout this sermon, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Why? Because there will be some throughout this sermon today that will hear it and you'll sit there and perhaps your mind will wander in and out and at the end of the day you may sit there and say, Jesus, meh, you don't know what I'm going through. My, my, my mind's focused on all these other things, so eh, some will be bored some are going to see. Some of you are going to see in deeper and greater and higher ways today as we consider Christ. The context of this passage is Lazarus, a very dear and near friend of Jesus, along with his sister Mary and Martha are the main ones in the story. He becomes sick, and the two sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus, and he hears Lazarus is sick, he's, he's, he's about to die, they're calling for him, come and be with him because they know his power, and he, he doesn't go. He waits, actually two more days, and then Lazarus dies. And why did he wait? Well, it's not in our main text, but if we look at verses 5 and 6, we get the clue that really sets up the whole rest of the story. In verse 5, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them, and so, because of his love for them, this is a purpose statement, verse 6, so, because of his love for them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So he delays, he doesn't run in to fix the suffering, doesn't run in to fix the problem. He waits, why does he wait? He waits because he loves them. You see, more than wanting them not to suffer, his love for them caused him to want them to see the glory of God, which was his purpose in this whole 
verse in this whole chapter that is in front of us today. He wants them to see the glory. And I have four points as we go through verses 17 through 53 today. The first one is this. The transforming truth about Jesus reveals his identity, who he is. Look with me again at verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And that's important. So not only, it took two days to get to him to hear the news. He waits two more days and then he goes. Lazarus is now dead. He's been dead four days, which was important in this Jewish context in particular because there were Jewish superstitions at the time that when somebody died, the spirit or the soul would hover around the tomb for about three days and after the third day, it's gone. And so it's important for Jesus to show he's waiting until everybody knows he's really dead. He's not mostly dead. He's really dead. All the way dead. He waits four days, right? The the body is now decomposing at this point. The King James puts it best in the later verse where it says he stinketh. That's what's happening. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated. We're going to see two very different personalities here in Martha and Mary. Martha runs off to meet Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know about you, but this is instructive for my heart. Because number one, she's facing this deep sorrow. What does she do? She runs to Jesus. She goes to Christ. And she's honest with him. She's open with him. She, she in essence, offers a, a question, uh, one of those God, why questions. Lord, I don't understand. If you would have just been here, things would have been different. And now he's dead. But look at her, her heart when, in verse 22 when she says, but even now, I have questions. I have these concerns. I, I, I wish this would have happened this way and it didn't. But even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And isn't that beautiful for us to know that even in the midst of our sorrows and our troubles, even now prayers are a beautiful thing. I encourage you to pray them. It goes on in verse 23, and Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, in essence, says, I believe that. She says in 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I believe God. I I believe that that event is coming. I'm sure of that, and I know that. But Jesus takes it one step further here. In verse 25, the crux of our text, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He so identifies himself with life. He's saying, without me, there is no event. Without me, you have no resurrection. When you see me, you see the resurrection. When you see me, you see life. And he teaches her, whoever believes in me, though he die like Lazarus just did, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die like you, Martha. Your brother is dead. But everyone who believes in me, even though he is dead, yet shall he live. And even you, Martha, who are still alive 
if you believe in me, you shall never die. Look what Christ is doing here in identifying himself with this very thing called life. It, it, and, and, and we can understand this. I, I think of, uh, think of, of, of what he's doing. I, I might sound silly example, but if, if you see a guy with a white suit on and white hair and a white goatee cooking fried chicken in Kentucky, what do you think? Colonel Sanders, you know. And when you think Colonel Sanders, you think Kentucky, KFC now, right? KFC. Colonel Sanders is so identified with Kentucky Fried Chicken that all you got to do is see his picture, and immediately that's where you go. You understand that. And, and, and I'm sorry, that's the lamest example, but it's the best I can come up with today. I just got back from vacation, all right? So what, what Jesus is doing there is that he's saying, understand the picture in front of you, me. It's not just a picture. This is the reality. Me, I am life. I am resurrection. Not I have resurrection, not I have life, not I can give you resurrection, I am resurrection. I am life. And this is important for us to understand because a lot of times you'll have people who think, especially sometimes someone that'll, maybe they don't understand the gospel or they're not a Christian, but they would say, I'm not a Christian, I, I like Jesus, but I, don't, but I believe in heaven. And, and the truth of the, of the Bible that it teaches us is you don't just die and go to heaven, you go to Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no heaven. Wherever Jesus is, is heaven. Wherever Jesus is, is life and life eternal. So it's not just some ticket to paradise. It's being united with a person, the very person of God himself in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. This is what John teaches us in John 17, 3, where we learn the heart and essence of what eternal life is in the first place. Jesus is speaking, and he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is in the great high priestly prayer where Jesus is explaining us, giving us the definition of what eternal life is. And he's saying, you want to know what it is? It's not floating on some cloud someday with a harp. It's knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what life is. And so the essence of eternal life is this, this never-ending knowing of God the Father and God the Son. Why? For God so loved the world that at the cost of His Son's life, He brought us into an everlasting knowing and admiring and, 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 and loving and enjoying of Himself and of Jesus. And so the love of God is the gift of Himself. And the greatness of that love actually increases in proportion to the greatness of what he's trying to accomplish in this passage, seeing his glory. It's like, it's like climbing a mountain, and the higher you climb, and, and I, I was just in the mountains up in Flagstaff in Sedona, Arizona. Beautiful. Anybody been to Sedona? It's beautiful. I love it. And I'm walking around looking at these mountains, and, 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 and I drove through this place called Oak Creek Canyon. It's like every bend is more and more beautiful. And that's what life is like with Christ, that every step closer and closer to Christ is like climbing higher and higher peaks and, and thinking, wow, that was incredible, but it gets better. This is life 
in Christ. This is knowing God. And then Jesus asked the question, Martha, do you believe this? Remember the context of this question. Lazarus is still in the tomb. We know the end of the story, right? But Lazarus is still in the tomb, and, and Jesus is revealing his identity. He's showing his glory, his greatness. He's telling her this truth, and then he points, pointedly asks, do you believe this? Do you trust me? Do you rest in me? Will you rely in me? Not just some intellectual credence. Will you depend fully on me? And she responds to him in verse 27 and says, Yes, Lord, which is the only thing you can actually say to him. You can't say no, Lord. That's an oxymoron. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. In essence, she's saying, I I believe you are who you say you are, and I want to see your glory, and I want to respond to that that vision of your glory by seeing you and knowing you, and I want to glorify you. I want to treasure you more than anything, more than my loved ones, more than life itself. She's beginning to get it. The transforming truth about Jesus reveals his identity in point two, Verses 28 to 37, the extensive emotions of Jesus reveal his love. Look at verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now we're about to see Mary, a very different personality than Martha. Martha was up doing things, right? She's busy. Mary is sulking, crying, mourning, down. She, She has a hard time getting up, but... But what happens? She gets news. Jesus Jesus wants to see you. Jesus is calling for you. And so she rises up quickly, verse 29, and she went to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, listen to these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did you hear those before? The same exact words that Martha had just said to him earlier. Two sisters, very different, same situation, same feeling, but you're going to see him process it differently. But not only that, we're going to see Jesus responding to them a bit differently. Mary and Martha are different here, and Jesus deals with them individually, which is a helpful lesson for us to learn this, because when it comes to people, we're all different. And, 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 and their situations, especially in situations where the emotions have been deeply affected and sorrows are like sea billows are rolling where we have to deal with one another with great love and tender care. Some have said there's times that the ministry of truth is needed and there's times that the ministry of tears is needed. And in the case of Martha, Jesus gives her the ministry of truth. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life, but do you believe that? That's what she needed at this time. But Jesus says no words to Mary. 
we're going to see in a few verses what he does is he mourns with her. He weeps. You see, some need the truth now and the tears later. While others need tears now and the truth later. And wisdom is knowing the difference. And you know you're maturing when you're doing the thing that isn't natural for you. Because I'm a fixer. I want to run in and fix everybody's problems. And I've had to learn over the years that there's a time to not fix the problem. There's a time to just sit and be present and cry and be with them. There's a time to keep your mouth silent and just minister through presence. And this is what Jesus does here. He is emotionally present with Mary in what a beautiful way. And I tell you, Jesus still has that ministry in our lives. Have, have you tasted his presence in those moments of suffering? I know I have. In the year 2000, my mother passed away. I was very close to my mom. She thought I like, could hang, hang the moon. You know, She was one of those moms that just think you're amazing. Moms, keep doing that to your kids because it's great. And when my mom passed, it just broke me. But I am so thankful. To this day, 19 years later, I still close my eyes and remember the presence of Christ in a unique way in that moment. Oh, to know his presence. And we need to be aware of those who are suffering. We need to be aware of those who are struggling. Think of, think of, of, the, of a married couple and, and, and think of a man who, who just lost his wife. Think of what he's feeling in that moment. She went to the breakfast table this morning and she wasn't with me. I can't hold her hand anymore. I can't, can't walk. I can't say I love her anymore. What do you do in those moments? Do you just look at him and say, well, suck it up. Jesus is the resurrection and the life and, and, and you, just need to, you just need to get through it. There's a time to minister truth. There's a time to minister tears. Here Jesus ministers tears. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you lain him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now it's interesting as we step back and look at why, why is he weeping? Why did Jesus cry? He knew what he was about to do, right? You go, to, you go to the early part of the passage, he's already got it in, in mind what he's going to do. He's going to show him his glory. He purposefully lets Lazarus die because he knows he's going to revive him. So why is, he, why is he crying? And there's a whole lot of different thoughts on that. A lot of different commentators have different things to say about his emotion and his love. And I believe those are certainly true. His compassion but also, there's a wide range of emotions that are going on here that we get deep clues in when it comes to looking at these words in verse 33. That he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word deeply moved, in the original language, it carries the meaning of a stern rebuke. And literally the picture that, that would be used in connotation of this word is like a horse that is snorting. So picture a war horse that's 
Then the, the word greatly troubled is one Greek word also, tarasso, which means to stir up or to agitate, like, like shaking up a, a, a bowl of water and it just gets stirred up like this. And so one emotion that often doesn't get noticed in this passage, the love gets noticed, the compassion as it should be gets noticed, but also what we're seeing here is this deep anger, this, this deep Stern rebuke, hoarse snorting anger that's stirred up deep in the spirit. At what? Angry at what? Well, not at them. We already see how he's loving Mary and Martha. Not at himself, because he'd be angry at God if he was angry at himself. What is he angry at? I believe he's angry at death. He's angry at death, and he's angry at the sin that leads to death and the unbelief that is present as well in those who are standing around doubting him and questioning him. This is a righteous anger, and it's a righteous anger that's driven by love. You see, he knows as the Son of God and God the Son that he's about to interrupt this funeral. But he also knows that there's millions and millions of more funerals that are going to be coming that he will not interrupt. He knows more than anyone that death really is the enemy. But why death? Why is death such a great enemy? Where does it come from? We know that that, that death comes from because of sin. Because the wages of sin is death. And so what's going on in these extensive emotions going on inside of the Son of God is this, this great love, this great compassion, also this, this great anger. Why? Because the more you love, the more you're angry at the things that threaten what you love most. Think about it. Parents, think about if your kids were seduced by someone to use drugs and you find out about it. Dads, what are you going to do? I I hope you sense that righteous anger that wells up inside of you. You're going to go deal with that. Or imagine a a, a gifted artist who takes months and months and months and a year painting or sculpting a beautiful masterpiece, and they, they spend their life on this masterpiece, and at the end someone walks by and throws paint and rips it apart. Would you be angry? Certainly. And so in his divine, or in his humanity, Christ is, is, is angry here. Because right in front of him, not only in the unbelief going around and the doubt, but also sitting in that grave right there, is the very thing that keeps us from seeing his glory. His goal is to show his glory. And yet the sin abounds. Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You see the scoffing? The goal is to see Jesus' glory leading to repentance and faith and belief in who he is. But what was happening, there's this doubt, this questioning, this lack of trust, this unbelief. And now the greatest goal wasn't being pursued. And here Jesus is angry and he's troubled. 
In essence, it's you want Lazarus alive more than you want me. You want Lazarus alive more than you want to see my glory. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life as he declared to Martha. His greatest love is that he gives us himself. And this is what we see pictured in number three, point three, the amazing act of raising Lazarus reveals Jesus' power. Verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It's using the same word we saw earlier, this, this snorting, right? Can you see him? Can you see him snorting with righteous anger against the enemy of death and sin and unbelief, approaching this grave like a champion fighter coming into the arena? That's how I picture it. It says it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He stinketh. (laughs) For he has been dead four days. I think that even is insightful for us to understand. Look what sin has done. Look Look at its effect. Here's the dear loved one in this grave, rotting. I don't mean to be sensational, but when you think about death, it's ugly. It's not pretty. We in our culture have tried hard to dress it up. In many other cultures, my wife's from Mexico, and when one of her family members dies, she's on a plane now. Why? Because they're getting them in the ground tomorrow because they don't have all the chemicals and stuff like we do and the paintbrushes to make us look pretty. But death is horrible, brothers and sisters. On average, it takes around 24 to 36 hours, according to one doctor I read, for a dead, decomposing body to begin to stink. And although it could be as few as 8 to 12. And this doctor said this, the best way to describe the odor would be similar to the following. I presume most of us has smelled tartar, either on dental floss or at the dentist if, if a bridge is removed. Not a good smell. Take that stench caused by a chemical called putrescine and magnify the odor about a thousand times. Combine that scent with strong morning urine and mixed with diarrhea and sat in an unflushed toilet. Add about a touch, about 1% of the sweet scent of a used wine glass that sat overnight and rotting meat and you are somewhat close to the odor of death. Why do I share that with you? Not to be sensational, but I want you to understand the ugliness of sin. That sin, that stench, that sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. And we don't, like hearing that a lot, especially when we're young and vibrant and strong and confident. But the truth, my friends, is that every single one of us is going to be there one day, unless the Lord tarries, or if the Lord tarries. So I ask you, my dear fellow sinners, are you so great? Are you so strong? Where will your strength be when your dead body 
displays all the effects of sin and stinks. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Jesus, we shouldn't open the tomb up. It's really bad smell. And Jesus is saying, Didn't I already say, Martha? Remember, I told you, if you believed, um, when did he say that? Well, you, you search the passage. What he's doing is he's, he's restating what he said back in verse 25 where he revealed who he is. I told you if you believed, you'd see my glory. What does that mean? I told you that if you just have faith that I am the resurrection and the life, that he who believes will not die. It's the glory of God to graciously give eternal life. What Jesus is telling her, it's, and it's not to those who do more and those who try harder, but for those who trust. Would you trust me, Martha? Do you believe my words? Do you believe what I'm saying to you? Has it sunk down deep? And then he's, he's about to do this amazing act here. The death and resurrection of Lazarus are gonna, it, it is about to happen, and it's a precursor of Jesus' impending death and resurrection. Jesus had already spoken of the day when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out in in John chapter 5. And so here in Lazarus, we're about to get a preview of coming attractions. Verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Listen to this prayer. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus does this purposeful prayer. He's, he's, what is he doing in the first place? The whole goal? See my glory. I want you to see my glory. So what's he doing? He's letting them know, Father, thank you that you've heard me. And I'm not telling, I could have said that under my breath, but I'm saying it out loud because I want everyone to know who I am. This purposeful prayer, he prays out loud, not for himself, for them. And I would encourage you, it's not wrong to pray under your breath and to pray silently, but there are good and right and needed times where we need to pray out loud. Not for the sake of myself or yourself, but for the sake of those around you. For the sake of those who who are gathered around, let them hear you pray. It's a good thing. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I like what uh, Charles Spurgeon said in essence. He said, it's really good he used his name. (laughs) Because if he didn't, all of the tombs and all over the world, everyone would have risen from the grave. He's specific. Just you, Lazarus. Not everyone else. That's the power of our God. Lazarus, come out. And the man, verse 44, who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Amazing. What do we have going on here? This, again, I, I, I believe this is a reviving, not a resurrection. Why? Because Lazarus is going to die again later. The resurrection is still to come. This is the precursor of what's, what's coming. But... It, it, it's very helpful in understanding this precursor and, and the importance of the, the death and the resurrection of Christ himself and what that means for our bodily resurrection, for, for Lazarus' bodily resurrection. 
In, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul spells out this vital connection between Jesus' bodily resurrection and ours when he says, if the dead are not raised, Jesus wasn't raised. But if Jesus was raised, we too shall be raised. And so the real loser in view here is death itself, and even more expressly, Satan, who according to Hebrews 2, holds the power of death. And so the resurrection that we presently enjoy through our union with Christ will one day segue into the resurrection of our bodies. And this is why, if we get this story, it really resonates with us. Because we can understand Mary, we can understand Martha, we can understand their pain. We can know the, the, the hopeless feeling and it's struggling to try to believe. Lord, I want to keep my eyes on you and I keep looking at this and I keep looking at that. I want to keep them on Christ. And so Jesus shows his, his identity, he shows his love, he shows his power here in raising Lazarus from the dead. And he tells him, unbind him and let him go at the end of uh, verse 44 there. Charles Spurgeon said about that, he said, the man was wholly raised, but not wholly freed. See, here is a living man in the garments of death. And this is almost parabolic in the sense of picturing Lazarus coming out of the grave, right? He's been revived, Can you, and it says he's still got his grave clothes on, right? So he's coming out like this, he's got a cloth over his face. And I wonder how long it took for somebody to, you know, was everybody just standing around watching? So that's kind of what it looks like. Like, what just, what? And here's Lazarus like, so he needed help. And this, is, this can be parabolic for us to understand that sometimes as Christians, as we've been set free, as we've been led out of the grave, as we've been given the life of Christ, and yet some of y'all still have your grave clothes on. Some of y'all keep running back and, and, and wearing this stinky cloth. And what we need to do often is look to others. This is why God gives us a blessing of a church, of a body of Christ. It's why you need one another. It's why you need a brother and a sister because sometimes I can't get out of this and Joshua needs to come along and unwrap me and help me. What a blessing the church is. And if you're new here at Grace Church and you haven't plugged in, you haven't, you haven't been a part or, or joined in membership and really united. I love what you said earlier. It's not just a gathering. Live life together because you need it. You need it more than you know. Fourthly and lastly, the substitutional sacrifice of Jesus reveals his infinite worth. We've seen his identity in the, in the proclamation of who he is. We've seen his love and his emotions. We've seen his power in raising Lazarus. And now we see this, this last part where they, they're, they're mad at him. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who'd come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Which is interesting. It's like first century tattletaling. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Yeah, he just raised the guy from the dead. If we let him go on like this, <laughs> then everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you see the depths of unbelief? Do you see how dangerous it is? That you can have people who just saw Jesus raise a man from the dead. They still don't believe. 
They still won't, don't want him. They grow angry at him. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here's what I love. Here's Caiaphas. Here's a man who hates Jesus, a man who wants him dead, and yet he says something prophetic. The sovereign God is using even his enemies for his purposes. It's an amazing thing. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. If you keep reading through the rest of the Gospel of John, this is really the the, the switch that is now flipped that leads into the death of Christ. In the Gospels, we read often Jesus is doing miracles and such, and what does he regularly tell people? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet until the time comes. The time has come. And Jesus understands that undoing this death, the death of Lazarus, is sealing the fate of his own. And yet, that's the very reason why he came. This is the plan of redemption unfolding before us, where Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son comes to this earth, lives the only righteous life that any human has ever lived, and comes now voluntarily, willingly, and purposefully to go to a Roman cross where he will willingly give up his life in crucifixion and go into the grave, but not stay there as we sang about earlier. He will rise again on the third day, forever conquering the power of sin and death and Satan and hell for all who believe. And the question he would pose is, do you believe this? Do you believe this this good news? Because, brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is the best news. That Jesus would not just die for the nations, that he would that he would die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What Caiaphas didn't understand was this prophecy that he's making, we're the beneficiaries of today because of the work of God in redemption. Undoing this death sealed the fate of his own, but for redemptive purposes. How? How is it possible that one man according to, to Caiaphas, that, that it's good for one man to die so everyone else is good. How is that possible? It's possible because this sacrificial sacrifice of Christ is, is redemptive only because of his worth. You see, I can't die for you, and you can't die for me to save me. Only Jesus, uniquely Jesus, Jesus alone as one man suffering for for just a few hours on a cross pays for all of the sins of generations. Why? Because he's not just any man. He's the God man. Paul Washer has put it this way. He said, you take mountains and molehills crickets and clouds. You take everything, every planet, every star, every form of beauty, everything that sings, everything that brings delight, and you put it all on the scale 
and you put Christ on the other side, he outweighs them all. He is worthy. He is worthy. And because of his work, because of the good news of what he has done and who he is, because he died, you can live. Because he paid the ultimate price, your debt is forgiven. Because he was cursed, you are blessed. Because he was made unrighteous, you are declared righteous. Because he endured wrath, you received grace. Because he was rejected by the Father, you were reconciled to the Father. Because he was shamed, you get to live without shame. Because he was made unclean, we are cleansed. Because he was hated, we are loved. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? And if you believe this, we have to celebrate this. We have to live a life that would glorify him. That's our goal. That's our purpose. We get to shine these truths into the world. We get to live life for the purpose for which we were actually created. We get to be forgiven of sin and declare the forgiveness of sins in Christ to those who desperately need him. We're about to to, to see this pictured this good news pictured in the elements of the communion. Oh, may it not be rote or ritualistic in any casual way. When you take that bread and crush it in your teeth, may you understand that the Son of God was crushed for us. When you drink that cup, may you remember that His blood was poured out for us. And may you celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ today. Father, I thank you. I thank you for who you are and what you have done. And now as we prepare our hearts for the communion, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would be steadfastly focused on your glory for these moments right now. That we have been encouraged in being together to sing your praises, to worship you, to be encouraged by sharing one another's burdens, to hear the word of God preached, Lord. Thank you. And now prepare our hearts. Father, I pray that each of us would see you as worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.